Jeff, what'd you do? <laughs> Be seated. Um, so I think the microphone's working okay. All right. So I am uh, extremely excited and honored to be able to kick this series off. We're starting a series on Be Still. And it is something that uh, I think everyone in here would agree with me that we need to improve on. Now, the only bone that I have to pick with my teammates, the other ministers, is why aren't you wearing your t-shirts? Everybody in the office talked me into wearing a t-shirt, and I'm thankful that I can be a part of a church where I can wear blue jeans and a t-shirt and preach and I don't get excommunicated, but I kind of understood that it was going to be a team effort, guys. <laughs> and so I feel like the, the guy that all his friends talk him into going to the the high school prom, you know, in blue jeans and a t-shirt, and then you show up and all your friends are there in rented tuxedos, and they won't let you in. But uh, I understand that these are going to be available throughout the year, and if you want to buy one, they're pretty cool, and they will serve as a great reminder of the message that we're going to kick off today, a series that we're going to start working on. So in the... <clears throat> Psalm 46 that was just read, verse 10, God said something very, very, very important. God said, be still and know that I am God. Now, if this was a, a normal sermon and I was going to expound on that, if I was going to exegete this passage, it would be a very short sermon. And it would be a type of sermon that would go something like this. God said, be still and know that I'm God. Get it? Okay, you got it. That's good. We're done. Because it's easy to understand, isn't it? It's not deep. It's not a mystery. It's not difficult to understand what God is talking about. Here's the problem. We choose not to be still. And it's not because we're unable it's because either we're afraid of coming face to face with the all-knowing God and being exposed to him for who we really are, like he doesn't already know, or we just don't know how to do this very well. And so in the coming weeks, Josh is going to continue this series and he's going to talk to us next week about why would we be afraid to come before God and to be still in his presence. And the following week and a couple of weeks after that, we're going to learn some things that we might need to know about how we can actually do this because it's difficult for us and we all know that already. My own personal journey with this started about a year ago this month. Last year, I had a privilege to go to a retreat with Dr. Gary Oliver, and the retreat was on emotional and relational intelligence, but part of the retreat was the opportunity to learn something and then to go sit quietly for four or five hours sometimes to reflect on it, to think about it, to make it personal. And I don't know about you, but that was a tremendous luxury because we don't get that very often. And this was one of the first quotes that he used in his teaching that just cut me to the heart. And I have never been able to get over this. Brennan Manning said in one of his books, Importance of Being Foolish, 
the unwillingness to sustain ourselves with the awareness that we are children of God causes a spiritual schizophrenia that is of the most frightening kind. It is not that I'm afraid to tell you who I am. I truly cannot tell you because I don't know myself who I am. Now, this is the important part of it. I have not given the deep inner assent to my Christian identity. In other words, I've not put the effort in. I've not accepted what it takes or what it costs to really figure out who God made me to be. And so I'm afraid of losing my life where I defined my real self. And what that does, God calls me by my name, but I do not answer because I do not know my name. Now, if you let that soak in, that is scary. And I think it's scary because on some level, we understand that it's true. We understand that if there is a part of our life that is missing because we can't be still. We can't sit quietly and peacefully in the presence of God and know that he is God. So I think it used to be easier to be still. And we have modernity to thank for the fact that it's no longer that way. Modernity is one of those fancy words for the modern culture that we live in. We live in a secular culture. We live in a modern culture. And if you think about what life was like five, six, seven hundred years ago, and what's changed in that period of time, it's pretty drastic. It's pretty amazing. Five, six, seven hundred years ago, the world was agricultural. People lived by subsistence farming. People were connected to nature. Some of you are, that are sitting here still know what I'm talking about. But we've got disconnected from that nature, the rhythm of life that comes from living in the elements. Also, a part of the spiritual understanding, the spiritual culture of that time, was everything was spiritual. The forests were haunted. They were enchanted. Everything was governed by benevolent or malevolent forces, demons and angels. And everybody believed in them. Everybody went to church. Everybody had some level of faith. Now understand, I'm not saying that it was right or that it was better back then by any means. I understand that there were warring hordes of bandits that came and robbed people. There was no medicine. I'm not saying that it's better, but it was very, very different. People were tied to nature. The elements and the seasons ran their lives. Time was measured in days and weeks and lunar months and years. Charles Taylor, one of the most often quoted and respected philosophers of the modern age, calls that an enchanted time. Enchanted like the fairy tales, enchanted like the, the story that's underneath a story. But in mod modernity, in our time, after the invention in the 1300s of the mechanical clock, after the inventions around 1450 of the printing press, after the inventions of the steam engine, the gasoline-powered engine, transportation, the Industrial Revolution, Enlightenment, and the Renaissance, 
we live in a very different world. We live in a world now that is governed by seconds and minutes and hours, not days and weeks and months. We are governed by an understanding of time that is chronos. There's two Greek words for it, chronos. So the stopwatch awareness of time instead of the kairos, the major events in life that mark different times, the rites of passage that mark time in our lives. We've moved along to where transportation, technology, including computers, the internet, and cell phones govern our life. We lived in heated and air-conditioned homes. We jump in heated and air-conditioned automobiles that race us to heated and air-conditioned places of work. And we can easily go through life without ever really being hot or cold or in touch with nature the way that people, our ancestors, used to be 500 years ago. So I'm going to share three articles with you that I think represent three truths that we need to be aware of. The first one is a question. Why do you feel so busy all the time when you're really not? So from a BBC article in 1916, Oliver or 2016, excuse me, Oliver Berkman, through research, discovered that we are really much less busy than our ancestors were when it comes to working, whether we get paid for it or not. When it comes to working, to provide for our families, to earn a living, we're much less busy than they were. We don't have to work six 16-hour days on a farm just to put food on the table. And another thing that he found out is that for families that feel like that they're spending insufficient time with their children, we are actually spending more time with our children today than ever before. And so the point is feeling busy and actually being busy might be two different things. So here is maybe a suggestion on what's going on at least here in North America. Another article from The Atlantic in 2017, Joe Pinsker wrote this article about, oh, I'm so busy being a status symbol of our time. Once, long ago, maybe not all that long ago, being richer meant working less. Thorsten Veblen wrote an article, wrote a book actually in 1899. It was called The Theory of the Leisure Class. And the point of the book was really very simple, although it took a whole book for him to elaborate it. But it was that the conventional mark of status, of richness, was leisure. And that the more money that you had, the less you worked. I mean, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But somewhere along the line, that has changed. And this article was written as a critique on the North American workaholic mindset. We have actually come to believe that we can evaluate somebody's status or worthiness 
by how busy they are. And have you noticed how you fall into this category? Have you noticed how when somebody says, how you doing? What's your kind of go-to response? Oh, I'm doing fine, but it's such a busy day. It's been a crazy week. We're all kind of sucked into this. And he did some fascinating research in this article, uh, for this article, where they, they set up some kind of fake uh, Facebook pages. And some of the Facebook pages were commenting on, oh, I'm so busy and I have to go to work and I have to do all these things. And then the other Facebook pages were like, oh, I've, I'm enjoying time with my family and we're getting ready to go on vacation and we're doing all these things and what a great uh, time it is not to have to work. And then they would ask a lot of people, well, how do you evaluate these people? And the people that were busy were always evaluated as being more important, wealthier, more skilled and capable and more educated. And the leisure people, regardless of who they really were, were evaluated as, well, that poor, I mean, probably can't find a job or, you know, something. And our mindset kind of really took over. And I think it's important for us to realize, even though it may be painful, that this is true of us as a culture. Whether or not we personally or individually identify with it is kind of important. Because we may not identify with it because it's not true of me, but we may not identify with it because we're not aware that it is true of me. And that is important. That is extremely important. It's interesting that not the whole world suffers from this. Other countries, even throughout Europe, especially Italy, they still live by Thurston's evaluation of the world. They love holidays. They love to not work. But that's not true of us in North America. One last question that's interesting also an Atlantic article, this one from 2008, is Google making us stupid? Okay, I see some heads shaking up and down. Is Google making us stupid? What is the internet doing to our brains, to the physical way our brains are wired? And this article was written by Nicholas Carr, who is a journalist and an author of several books and he was kind of started writing the article commenting on the way that he relates to information and communicates information. And he said that the internet has become a universal medium, a conduit for not just me, but most of us that flows through my eyes and ears and mind all the time. I have immediate access to anything that I want information-wise, and I can access the body of knowledge that the world has accumulated simply by going to Google. And then he makes a comment. He says, the supply of stuff and thought shapes the way I think. He's quoted as saying, once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. 
His commentary was that the way that we're used to receiving information actually is eroding our ability to concentrate. How many of you would like to sit down with a book called War and Peace that is about that thick and read that? We talk to each other in the office, even if we're going to write articles or if we're going to write even an email, if it's longer than a couple of paragraphs, we don't, nobody's going to read it, right? And so we need to understand the culture that we're a part of and perhaps kind of push back on it a little bit. Friedrich Nietzsche in 1882 bought a typewriter. He was going blind and he could no longer write anymore longhand. So he bought a typewriter and he began to type. He quickly learned how to type well and he kept on writing. He was a prolific writer. But some of his closest friends immediately commented, your writing is changing, Friedrich. And he understood that. And he said, well, the way that I'm writing it has changed. And about that same time, in the, early 1800, or the late 1800s, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Friedrich Winslow Taylor who carried a stopwatch into a Midbell steel plant in Philadelphia and he began historic research on efficiency and how to make the production line more efficient. And shortly after that, the phrase was coined, time is what? It changes the way our culture, the things that have happened to us, change the way that we look at time. So is it any wonder that when God says, be still and know that I am God, that that causes at least a little bit of angst in us or regret or fear? Because we routinely ignore his instruction and we dive ever deeper into distraction and diversion and entertainment and we're carried along with mediums of reading and writing and thought that are increasingly more chaotic and anything but still. The result is we lose the ability to be still and to know not only that he is God, but the ability to know him as God in my life. So if my sermon today is a critique on modern culture, and kind of stepping on your toes, I'm sorry, but you need it. I need it. We all need it. We need to wake up to something that is affecting us so deeply that we may not even be aware that it is affecting us. And so we're certainly not prepared to push back against it. So in the early 1900s, 1904, Rodin uh, sculpted this sculptor, what's the name of it? The Thinker. And it was kind of a sign of the times, but this is the modern sculpture that we find sitting around us, the Tweeter. So we no longer have the Thinker, now we have the Tweeter. 
And we idealize the youth, and, and this is such a common sight, and we all see this when we go to a restaurant. How funny is it to see a mom and dad and two kids all sitting around eating dinner in a restaurant together, and what are they doing? They're all on their cell phones. Now, I don't know if they're tweeting each other or what they're doing, but they're not engaged with each other. They're not talking to each other. And the idea, this idea, is powerful and scary at the same time. Do you want to know how scary it is? If you have anywhere from 10-year-olds, maybe even younger, 10-year-olds up to teenagers living in your house, try to make a rule that we're going to have a no-screen night. We're going to play board games. We're going to do something else. Do you think that they will push back against that? I see a few smiles out there. Yes, they will push back against that. Because the screen, the cell phone, the smartphone has become such an integral part of our life that it almost feels like we can't live without it. And we need to challenge that feeling. So we have a class over in the activity center, the Life on Mars. Blake Jackson's teaching it. I am absolutely loving that class. It's the one that has made me aware of a lot of this stuff and kind of encouraged me to read some of these books. But in that book, or I mean in that class, we, we talk often about how the age of enchantment was this period of time before the clock and the, the printing press and the, the transportation and the, the computer and the cell phones and the, all of that. And it was an age of enchantment. And that term is probably used to juxtapose the term that describes today disenchantment. How many of you feel at times disenchanted with the world around you? Disenchanted with the way that you're moving through it or the way you're guiding your family through that world? We as a people, as a culture, are very disenchanted. My goal this morning in this sermon is to encourage us towards re-enchantment, which means finding God again on his terms, not on my terms, but on his terms. And he's already told us how to do that. So we have to learn how to be still. Final slide. The thing that I think is um, different for me and important to understand is that the first step towards re-enchantment is to reawaken within ourselves and others. Talk about public faith. This is, this is where public faith lives. So we awaken within ourselves and in others the deeper desires of the heart for truth and goodness and beauty. And in turn, it will arouse the heart's deepest desire, the desire to love God. Now, N.T. Wright writes a book called Simply Christian, and in the beginning of it, his first section of that book is Echoes of a Voice. And what he means by that, he starts out, the first paragraph in that is, oh, I just had a dream, and I woke up, and I can't remember all the details, but 
but I have this impression, I have this sense that it was about something great, something wonderful. Have you ever had that experience? And he says that that is what we're like with God. That God still desires and in fact is working very hard in our lives, but we don't hear it the way that we would hear something from the television or from the computer or in any other way we would hear it. The way that we hear it is it's like an echo. It's like that mysterious leftover sense that something important was just said, just happened. One of the things that he adds to truth and goodness and beauty is, is justice, our sense of justice. Where does our sense of justice come from? What makes children on the playground say, it's not fair? Where does our understanding of there is truth, there's got to be truth, there's got to be goodness, there's got to be beauty in the world. And as we look around and we see it, there is this sense that it means something. I can't quite put my finger on it. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's got to mean something. It can't just be all empty and shallow and, and just this is what it is. No, this is what it's not supposed to be maybe, but what it is is creation by God, by a loving God that loves us and that wants us to know him. And he told us how to do that. It's simple. Well, it's not really simple, but it, it's pretty straightforward. Be still. Learn how to be still. I'm so excited to see what Josh is going to bring us in the weeks to come because I want to learn how to do this better. And I hope that you do too. And it starts with that awakening in the heart of the deepest desires that we have for truth and goodness and beauty and justice. And if you don't know Christ, those deep desires may not be planted in your heart as firmly as they could be and they should be and as God wants them to be. And so we invite you, as we stand and sing, if you have a desire to know God more deeply and to find out how you can walk with him more closely and become stiller, quieter with him, let us know how we can help you as Christian leads us in a song.